Hello, and welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. We have a lot to do today. Um, I realize that by having you read Apollodorus, I'm kind of throwing you into the deep end of the pool here. Um, but the fact of the matter is, uh, when you read the Iliad, you are reading it in a way that is very different from the way the, that most Greek audiences would normally read, or rather, listen to this poem. Um, We'll talk about the form stuff and the style stuff next time when we read uh, our essay on form and style and meter and all that fun stuff. Um, but today what I want to do is get us familiar with the actual mythological context that the Iliad occurs in. Um, and this is tricky. Um, the weird thing about Greek mythology is that it very much was not systematic the way that we usually conceive of, like, big, fantastic, you know, interconnected universes today. Um, like, we're honestly have very spoiled as far as the idea of, you know, quasi-fictional, quasi-factual, you know, quasi-historical, like, fictional universes go. I mean, we live in a world where half of our movies that come out in a given year belong to either the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the Star Wars Universe, both of which expect pretty high standards of canonical fidelity from one entry to another. Um, so one of the first things that we need to talk about in Greek mythology is that it does not work that way. Um, there is no logical entry point for Greek mythology. There is no logical first entry for Greek mythology. Every work that we have from Greek mythology is already pre-digested, pre-processed, boiled down a million times in order for us to get the text that we have. Um, when we talk about Greek mythology, we're going to essentially be talking about a long and storied tradition that is long and storied by the time that even our first writers are writing about it. Um, this, these were orally told stories long before Homer wrote anything down, long before Hesiod wrote anything down, and definitely long before we get this passage from the Library of Apollodorus. Um, so the first thing we need to get straight is it's not going to necessarily hold together, and it's not going to necessarily make sense. Um, there are going to be frequent contradictions between texts, even within texts. Um, there are some famous, quote, errors in the Iliad where certain characters actually die multiple times. Keep an eye out for those. It's hilarious when it happens. Um, but it's also very blink and you'll miss it. Um, so, you know, I very well might not catch it this time around. Um, but also, notice what we're getting here in the Library of Apollodorus is a very convenient, pre-digested, all of the wrinkles, or at least most of the wrinkles, already ironed out for us. Um, which makes it kind of perfect for us, seeing as you were looking for one consistent story, one consistent canon, what with your modern training and upbringing. So Apollodorus conveniently, like, gets rid of a lot of the alternative translate translation or a lot of the alternative traditions and uh, like takes care of any logical inconsistencies that would have occurred in most cases but you'll also notice that he doesn't all the time like the very first thing we read about in the library of apollodorus is a potential contradiction um, there are multiple different accounts which all contradict each other about both Helen's birth and the way that Helen is abducted. 
Like, literally, you can't get the, through the first two pages of the selection that I've presented for you without running into Apollodorus hedging his bets and uh, acknowledging that there are multiple different interpretations of how these events have, in fact, occurred. Um, now, what this means for us is that we have to recognize that Apollodorus and this version of mythic events is itself something that has been revised and changed and edited and sort of disparate from group-to-group tradition-to-tradition for a long time already. Um, now, part of this is because Apollodorus is actually a really late writer as these things go, which makes him, again, not exactly ideal for this particular job, as much as he is great at concisely telling all of these stories. Um, Apollodorus is supposedly this guy who lived in the 1st or 2nd century BC, um, but is much more likely some random dude who we don't know who he is, who lived in the 1st and 2nd century AD, i.e., you know, after Jesus, which we're going to have to talk timeline now. So get ready, because we're going to talk dates, we're going to talk about time, we're going to talk about the way that all of this stuff fits together. Um... So, if I had a board here, this would be the point where I would actually be drawing a timeline on the board. When we talk about Greek mythology, we have to recognize that we have something like a thousand five hundred years of tradition that we are sort of wading through just to get the text that we read for this class today. Um, like I said, Apollodorus is writing in the 2nd century AD, in all likelihood. That's the best guess that scholars seem to have these days for, for when this text was actually written. And it's awesome that we have it. Um, like, again, not a whole lot of Greek texts have survived all of this time. Typically, it's only the super popular ones, or the ones that, you know, were very well protected, or the ones that have some extreme religious importance looking at you, the New Testament, the Old Testament. Um, but Apollodorus is kind of a fluke, as far as that's concerned. Apparently, he was pretty well read, as far as second century, you know, summaries of mythological traditions go. Um... But we also have to recognize that he's coming at the end of this tradition. Um, at this point, when Apollodorus is writing, Greece isn't even Greece anymore. It's one of the provinces of Rome. Like, Rome has already taken over the place, instituted their own mythology, and you can see that reflected in some of the names that Apollodorus uses. Um, for example, when he talks about Odysseus, rather than talking about Odysseus, he talks about Ulysses, which is the Romanized name for Odysseus. When he talks about Heracles, i.e. what the Greeks would have called Heracles, he instead talks about Hercules, the Roman version, which you are probably more familiar with. Um, likewise, he also talks about Alexander instead of Paris, even though Homer will frequently refer to him as Paris, as the abductor of Helen. Um, so even here we see that these are fairly anachronistic takes on characters that Homer is going to be writing about, you know, way earlier. And that's what I need to emphasize here. Um... In the tradition of Greek mythology, Homer and Hesiod are bedrock. That is as early as we get, and they are sources that just about everybody in the Greek world knows because they are bedrock to them as well. So when, for example, Plato is writing about the potential benefits and you know detriments of Greek mythology being taught to young children, he emphasizes Homer and Hesiod are the greatest writers in the mythological tradition, they are the earliest writers in the mythological tradition, and most of the stuff that has been written since, including, say, the Library of Apollodorus, are rooted in and based on Homer and Hesiod. 
Now, we're not going to read Hesiod in here because it's kind of irrelevant to what we're doing. Um, take my mythology class and you will get plenty of Hesiod. Um, but Homer, Homer is the guy who builds the Trojan War tradition. So in a class called Troy and the Trojan War, you better believe we're going to be reading a whole lot of Homer in here. Um, what's more, Homer is the more literary of the two great mythological writers. Like, Hesiod's got his moments, he writes some decent poetry and so on and so forth. That's, that's all fine. But Homer is the one who scholars still today read this stuff and are slack-jawed at how carefully the plots and characters are wrought, how beautifully the poetry actually flows. Like, there is a lot to recommend about Homer that you can't even recommend about Hesiod. Um, so keep in mind, though, that Homer is writing literally a thousand years before Apollodorus is writing. Like, if Apollodorus is writing in the second century AD, Homer is likely writing in the ninth or eighth centuries BCE. So literally 800 years to supposedly 0 AD, and then another 200 years to, you know, 200 AD. And that's the rough paradigm that we're working with here. Um, so these stories are already super old. Like, crazy old. Um, by the time that Apollodorus is writing this out. Um, the Iliad and the Odyssey have been told and retold for likely more than a thousand years at this point, because even Homer is recording this stuff after these stories have been told many, many, many times. Um, for comparison, like, just to sort of give you a frame of reference here, the legends of King Arthur aren't a thousand years old now. Um... Like, in all likelihood, when the, the first Legends of King Arthur were written, or, or at least set down by Geoffrey of Monmouth and, and Chrétien de Troyes, we're, we're talking about something that is maybe, at most, 1,100, 1,200 years old. And the idea of, like, there being a Sir Lancelot, who's a super badass, is only 900 years old. So that's the kind of age that we're talking about here. Um, and that's to Apollodorus, a writer who is himself... 1,800 years old by our reckoning. So these are really, really old stories. Not necessarily the oldest ever told. Like, we've got copies of the Gilgamesh now. That's probably as close to the oldest story ever told that we have. Um, the Old Testament is frequently older, or maybe older, depending on who you talk to. Um, but nonetheless, these are old, old, old stories, and they're old by the time that we're getting them in their new fangled version today. Um, so, to give you a rough idea of the sort of scope that we're looking at, let's backtrack from Apollodorus all the way back to the events that likely inspired the Trojan War, if such events ever actually took place. Um, so again, Apollodorus is writing in the 1st or 2nd century AD, which is already after Greek has, Greece has been conquered by Rome and has been largely Latinified. Uh, well, that doesn't mean that he's writing in Latin by no means. Um, Greek continued to be the most popular language to write in and trade in for many years after the Roman conquest. Um, so, you know, it's not weird that the center of, you know, study of Greek mythology remained Greece and was conducted in Greek. Um, but to give you an idea, Rome only conquered Greece like 300 to 400 years ago in Apollodorus's mind, which again is a long time. Like this is, you know, us and the Renaissance or us and, you know, like the scientific revolution taking place. Um, but nonetheless, you know, 400 years has transpired and 
since Greece was in fact independent of the Roman Empire. Um, the Romans being relatively new kids on the block, as far as that's concerned. Um, now, that said, that's a whole other ballgame from when Greece was having its golden age. Like, if you are, in fact, talking about ancient Greece and the Parthenon and, you know, really important things like Pericles and Plato and Euclid and Sophocles and Euripides and a lot of, like, the greatest Greek writers and Greek civilization, you know, the foundation of democracy in Athens, all that fun stuff... We're going back another 200 years, possibly three. We're talking about 4th, 5th century BCE. This is the flower of Greek culture. This is what people are usually referring to when they talk about classical Greece or ancient Greece. Um, which I should mention, they are all... They all are they are all familiar with Homer. They have been reading Homer for a very long time at this point. And Homer is, to them, old, because Homer was written in the 9th or 8th century BCE. Um, so again, keep in mind that Apollodorus is writing, like, the synopsis of a story that has been retold and retold, modified and adapted many, many times at this point. Um... This is, you know, comparable to us retelling the story of King Arthur as a, you know, YA novel today. Like, that's the kind of permutations that we're seeing here. Um, a lot of the stories have been, like, chewed over and changed and revised and manipulated and fit together and, you know, taken apart and fit back together again over and over and over again. And... Notice, I keep talking about Homer as the end point here. Homer is writing about the Trojan War, which admittedly scholars don't seem to be of one mind as far as whether or not the Trojan War actually happened, but they are all in agreement about when it would have happened if it had happened. And we're talking about 1200 BCE here. So when Apollodorus is writing his stories, he is basing them on classical Greek stories, which are 600 years old. Those classical Greek stories are basing them on Homer, which is 400 years old to them. And Homer is basing these stories on events that supposedly took place 400 years ago for him. So we're talking about a 1,500-year sweep of history here between Achilles and Agamemnon supposedly being alive and fighting at Troy and the Library of Apollodorus summary that we get, which I am disseminating to you in this class. Which means, let's keep this in focus here, the Library of Apollodorus was written a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit longer ago than the events of the Iliad occurred to Apollodorus. It was 1,400 years between the events of the Iliad and Apollodorus. It's been 1,800 years since Apollodorus wrote his text from today. So we're talking about, like, 3,000-plus years of history that have transpired in order to get this story in our hands. And then we get into stuff like, what are the archaeological evidences for the city of Troy? And it's like, oh, they date back to 3000 BCE, so now we've got like 5,000 years of history on our hands. This is going to take a little bit to untangle. But what I want to emphasize here, rather than, you know, making sure that you get all the dates right, and making sure that you get all the numbers right, is I want to stress that this is a tradition that is in motion. The thing about studying history, the thing about studying archaeology, and the thing about studying ancient literature in any form 
is that it is kind of like a photograph of a speeding train. It is not capturing what is in fact going on here. We are getting this tiny glimpse of what is happening past, present, and future. And everything is in motion. The stories that we have are part of a long tradition that has spanned many, many years before we get them, and they are part of a tradition that is going to span many, many more years by the time that we receive them today. Our interpretation of Homer is going to be informed by a lot of those traditions that have happened since Homer, and will thus bias our opinions about Homer, but also Homer himself is basically engaged in a literary fabrication of a history that in some ways never existed. Um, all of this is in motion. Homer is writing about contemporary trends when, and imposing them on the Trojan War, even though they're two, three, four hundred years out of date in some cases. Um, it's going to be messy, untangling all this stuff. And again, unlike you know, trying to get into Star Wars or trying to get into, you know, any number of convoluted mythologies that are created by, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or any number of writers today. Unlike that, these pros these stories were told by a multitude of different writers over literally thousands of years in some cases. They're not all going to fit together. Um, we are frequently going to have to break and talk about how the traditions differ. How some traditions have it that Odysseus took the armor of Achilles and brought it to some place in Egypt where it supposedly just rotted, you know, on the wall, and the other tradition that Homer seems to be giving us where it actually sank to the bottom of the sea. Um, there's gonna be some discrepancies, there's gonna be some contradictions, there's gonna be some mess to untangle. But, and this is important, they don't care and we shouldn't either. Like, I know that today one of the great fun things that nerds do on the internet is find plot holes in these convoluted narratives, like contradictions in the way that the MCU presented one thing or another thing, retcons of famous comic book stories, you know, errors in continuity in Star Wars or whatever. We're not going to dwell on those. Um, there are going to be tons of them. We can absolutely have some fun with them if we see fit, but that's not the priority here. The Greeks wouldn't give a shit, and neither should we. Um, for the Greeks, they frequently had competing traditions in various different places, according to different people, according to different cultures, um, and this was all just fun and games to them. It did not matter that things did not line up historically, that things did not make sense. There was no objective history or the discipline of history for most of the time that we're going to be talking about in this class. Um, the idea that mythology and history are two different things is a creation that is way after Homer. Uh, largely the business of Thucydides and Herodotus, Herodotus, two great historians of that Greek golden age in the 4th-5th century BCE. So Homer is not interested. As far as he's concerned, he is telling history, and he is doing mythology. He's doing both. They're the same thing. Why are you asking these silly questions? I don't care. I just want to tell a good story. And that's what we're here for as well. When we read the Iliad, I don't expect that we're going to be dwelling on contradictions. I don't expect that we're going to spend large percentages of class time talking about different traditions. Instead, we're going to talk about the story. 
We're going to talk about what Homer is trying to communicate, about the characters, and about the values that he is trying to communicate, and if there are problems in the delivery mechanism, we are going to be pretty quiet about them, because they don't matter to the Greeks, they don't matter to Homer, and they shouldn't matter to us either. Now with that in mind, the next thing we definitely need to do is get the events straight and we need to get the characters straight. Unfortunately, the best way to get the events straight is by looking at the characters. So keep in mind, again, as much as we are looking at these characters in Homer specifically and they will very much be presented to us in a way that is totally digestible and accessible, like as much as you do not need to know the mythological tradition and of Zeus or Hades or Poseidon or any of the great Greek gods or any of the great Greek heroes in order for the Iliad to you know, be meaningful and to make sense, Keep in mind that for most readers of the Iliad, most people who heard the, or the poem told orally in Homer's day and earlier, these would have been familiar names. Um, and I know that reading Apollodorus is like 50% story and 50% names. Um, and there are a lot of them to keep track of, which is why I doctored up the, the document so, you know, I bolded all of the names that you really need to know in order to, you know, get through this class and to prepare for reading the Iliad in the, the coming weeks. Um, and even then, I imagine that it's pretty dang overwhelming, sort of getting bombarded with these names right off the bat. So today's primary goal is to get our names straight. Let's get all of our characters straight, let's get all the gods straight, let's get all of our ducks in a row as far as who the major players here are. So when we start reading the Iliad next week, we already have a good idea, you know, when it says Zeus said this or Hera did this, we know who we're talking about, we know what they represent in Greek mythology, we know what their legacy is roughly speaking, and we can go from there. Um, plus, this gives me a great opportunity to tell some wild myths and stories, which, you know, otherwise we wouldn't be able to get to in this class. So, obviously, we have to start with the gods and the goddesses. They're going to be a huge deal in the Iliad. Not so much in the Odyssey, but we are going to see them come up frequently in the Iliad. We're going to see them come up frequently in other Greek writing. We're going to see them discussed extensively in the other literature about Homer, all the stuff in the Cambridge Com or Companion to Homer, um, and we're even going to see them come up in the Aeneid and other places, although they'll all have different names at that point, just to further confuse you. Um, so we got to get the gods straight in order to get a sense of how the Greeks understood their universe here. Um, and obviously, the god who we need to talk about first is also, conveniently enough, the first thing to come up in the Library of Apollodorus passage. He's literally the second word of the text, and by that, of course, I mean Zeus. Um, Zeus is in charge. Zeus is the king of the gods. Um, according to the tradition given us by Hesiod in the Theogony and the Works and Days, Zeus is like the primary guy who has created the order of the universe as we have it today. Before Zeus, there were titans and horrible, like, primordial gods, and in many cases they were just brute and mean and nasty, and they were frequently fighting and killing each other. Zeus, along with his buddies, who are mostly named here, and who are mostly his brothers and sisters and daughters and sons, um, beat the crap out of the titans, established the universe as it exists today, and that universe is way more orderly and way nicer to live in than anything that was happening when the titans were in charge. Um, it's still really bad. 
and we will see it emphasized frequently throughout Homer and elsewhere. The universe is a very hostile place to the Greeks, and we'll talk about that as we get to the, these ideas. Uh, but Zeus is, in large part, the protector of humanity, and the, the guy in charge of the divine order, which makes everything orderly and makes nature behave itself, in short. Um, so with that in mind, first and foremost, you got to know that Zeus is the king of the gods. He's in charge. Um, anytime that there are disputes on Olympus, it's going to be Zeus who has the final say. And Zeus, as much as he is the king of the gods, and as much as he is very interested in proving that to everybody, very, very much about showing off his power and demonstrating exactly how strong he is. Like, at one point in the Iliad, he's going to tell everyone, you know, shut up, because if I wanted to, I could, like, tie you all in a giant ball and, like, carry you over my shoulder on one thread. Um, he could probably do that, in fact. Um, but strength isn't everything, and the Greeks know that strength isn't everything. As much as Zeus is the ruler of Olympus and the king of the gods, he's also kinda easy to manipulate for a number of reasons. Um, Zeus's major weakness is the ladies. Like, you'll see right here at the beginning of the Library of Apollodorus, and you'll see this in many Greek myths, many of the great heroes, many of the great stories are kicked off when Zeus has some kind of sexual indiscretion with some hot-looking mortal. Um... This happens all the time in Greek mythology. Leda and the swan business is just one particularly important and classic example of Zeus going around stupid mortals and getting in trouble as a consequence, and creating havoc on Earth as a consequence. Um, Zeus doesn't care about the consequences of his actions. He just likes hot ladies, and occasionally hot guys as well. Just ask Ganymede sometime. Um, Zeus frequently sleeps around, and as a consequence, he is frequently in trouble with his wife, and trying to maintain domestic tranquility while also getting his rocks off is kind of the primary motivating factor for a lot of what Zeus does. He is in charge, he sleeps around, by sleeping around he frequently gets in trouble, and then he has to do stuff to make everything better again. Um, he frequently has to suck up to Hera in order to keep her from being mad at him, or alternatively, Hera will be mad and will make lives miserable for various mortals because she's jealous or angry or whatever. Um, but we'll talk about Hera in her own place. So, again, first things to know about Zeus. A, he's the king, he's super powerful, he is in charge. B, he is constantly chasing after the ladies, and it's constantly getting him in trouble. Um, now, in addition, the ladies frequently can manipulate him, and you'll see this a lot in Homer's Iliad especially. Um, Zeus has obviously his primary wife. He has other wives. Don't ask. It's a whole thing. We're not going to really talk about it all that much. Um, but Hera is the one that you definitely need to keep her, your eye on. Hera is the one who is frequently going to be mad about Zeus's indiscretions. She is the one who can still manipulate Zeus and seduce him into doing her bidding and doing her will. Um, she is the one who will get angry and cause havoc in other various ways. Um, and she is a force in her own right. Like, as much as Zeus pretends like he is in charge and that he rules the place and that he rules his family with an iron hand, Hera can frequently get shit done by messing with Zeus and by threatening him or tempting him or basically manipulating him in any number of ways. The Greeks have a pretty 
messed up view of the relationship between men and women, but it is also very pragmatic, very realistic in some sense. Um, i.e. they know that as much as men are powerful and strong and, you know, the economic rulers of the world, as much as they're in charge of everything, they know that at the end of the day, they are also subject to their wives, their daughters, and their families, and as a consequence, a lot of the stuff that men do will be because their women get them to do it in one way or another. And that's definitely true in Zeus's household as well. Hera will manipulate him by withholding sex. Athena will manipulate him because she's his favorite daughter. Like, Zeus can frequently have, like, be sort of boxed into corners or manipulated into doing things under the right circumstances. Um, so, super crazy powerful, not all that bright, frequently tempted by ladies, frequently manipulated by his own household. Um, so, moving on, let's talk about the other members of the Big Three, as it is said. According to Hesiod, once upon a time, the three, like, eldest brothers who were born to Kronos, the king of the Titans, um, namely Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, drew lots and decided where they were going to rule as a consequence of the drawing of lots. Zeus pulled the sky. Um, he is therefore the ruler of the sky. So in addition to his job of being the king of the gods and being run around by the ladies, he is also the guy who wields thunderbolts, and these are super powerful, crazy strong, and will frequently be like evidence and of both Zeus's strength and of his divine judgment. If Zeus is pissed at you, he will probably strike you dead with a lightning bolt. That's kind of how he rolls. The gods are, for the most part, terrified of these lightning bolts. Nobody else can wield them, normally. There are occasions where, like, Athena or somebody will wield a lightning bolt with Zeus's permission, presumably. Um, they're all terrified of these lightning bolts, but they are also, you know, equipped with their own weapons, and, you know, they could theoretically actually oppose Zeus if they really wanted to, but they don't, because he's really scary when he's carrying those thunderbolts. Um, Zeus is also in charge of the winds to some degree. He is in charge of like storms and clouds and all that fun stuff. Um, so frequently when you see a storm rising, it's because Zeus is mad at you for one reason or another. Um, going along with this is Poseidon's whole shtick. Um, we're going to not see that much of Poseidon until the Odyssey. Like He does, in fact, hang around the the periphery of the Iliad, but he's not nearly as important as Zeus, like most of the gods we're talking about here are not nearly as important as Zeus. Um, but Poseidon is sort of the second-in-command here in the divine order of things. Um, if Zeus is in charge, Poseidon is kind of there as well. Now that said, Poseidon doesn't actually spend all that much time on Olympus. He is the god of the ocean, the god of the sea, and he kind of keeps to himself as a consequence. Um, he will frequently get offended when people are messing with him or when they fail to provide him with due sacrifices and stuff, um, which is why, you know, you get Poseidon getting pissed at people like Odysseus, who is just trying to get home, why can't you leave me alone? Um... But Poseidon generally has his own sort of agenda, separate from whatever is going on on Olympus with all the drama that's happening between Zeus and his offspring and Hera and so on and so forth. Uh, Poseidon does, in fact, have wives and consorts, and he has his own sort of stories and stuff, but they're not going to factor too much into what Homer is telling us about the Iliad and the Odyssey. So he is important. Definitely be aware of Poseidon. Definitely watch out for him. Um, definitely look to him 
especially as the god of the ocean, controlling what is basically the only way that Greeks can travel in this universe. Um, and that, as a result, everybody's going to kind of keep him happy, despite the fact that he's a grumpy old cuss and kind of trouble more often than not. Um, but let me emphasize that last bit about how the Greeks need Poseidon to be happy because the Greeks spend a lot of time traveling by sea. Um, I do not have a map to show you at this particular point in time because I am just a voice on your headset. Um, but nonetheless, I should stress that the Aegean world of the Greeks and the Trojans and Anatolia and all that fun stuff here in the eastern Mediterranean is... Not fun to travel if you are going over land. Greece especially is a giant rocky mess of islands and, like, peninsulas and cliffs, and it is dangerous to go over land for any decent length of time. It is just a rocky, mountainous mess of countryside. Um, and this is kind of important to understanding what the Greeks are talking about when they talk about, like, what does it mean to have a farm? Because it's really hard to grow plants on rocky outcroppings. So, you know, arable land where you can actually plant grain and, you know, grow crops is really valuable to the Greeks. Um, and when they find islands that are especially fertile, they get really excited about it because a lot of the islands they're running into are just barren, rocky lumps in the ocean, and those are not helpful and are actually super dangerous when you're hanging around on a flat-bottom boat that is kind of garbage. Um, so... Poseidon is, as a consequence, in charge of a really major part of Greek life. The ocean is the way that you get around the Greek world. It is faster to go from Athens to Sparta by sailing around the Greek peninsula than it is to go over land over the tiny little isthmus that connects the two. Um, Likewise, it is often strategically very important for the Greeks to hold certain parts of land to prevent armies from getting from point A to point B, which is how you get the story of 300 Spartans holding off hundreds of thousands of Persian cavalrymen because they controlled the one pass that will allow them to go through Thermopylae. Um, this happens fairly frequently in the Greek world. So again, boat travel is way more efficient, way more effective, and a lot of what we're going to be reading in this class has to do with going over seas and going by boats to places. So you got to keep Poseidon happy in order to keep the seas from rising up against you, and you got to keep Zeus happy because your boats are kind of very dependent on wind power, and if the wind is not blowing in your direction, you are just fucked. You will just sit there not being able to do a damn thing until the wind changes around. So, for example, you'll remember that when all of the Greeks have gotten all their boats together and they're getting ready to travel off to Troy, they can't because the wind is blowing in the wrong direction. And it is consistently blowing in the wrong direction for, like, months. And the Greeks can't do anything about it until they finally make Artemis happy, who is apparently pissed at Agamemnon because of various reasons. And Agamemnon has to sacrifice his own daughter in order to get the winds to blow in the correct direction so they can actually get to Troy and do a Trojan War, which obviously has its own consequences, which hopefully we'll have time to talk about. Um, but all that to say, you got to keep Zeus happy, you got to keep Poseidon happy if you want to do any traveling in the ancient Greek world whatsoever. Now, the third of the big three is Hades. And Hades is really weird. We're not going to see Hades almost at all 
in our reading in this class. Like, he's going to come up in the Odyssey. We, we're going to have a whole big chapter where Odysseus decides to, you know, like, chill with the dead for a while. Um, Aeneas will hang out in Hades a little bit, and Virgil, and we'll read about that. Um, but we're rarely ever going to see the guy, like Hades himself. Um, Hades is both the name of the person who rules the underworld and the name of the underworld itself, in many cases. So more often than not, we're going to hear the underworld referred to as Hades, rather than, like, meeting Hades in person and shaking hands with him and stuff. If Poseidon is a recluse, hanging out in the ocean and not participating in Olympian politics, Hades is a freaking hermit. Um, he does not ever leave the underworld. Ever. He is in charge of that domain. He takes his responsibility very seriously, which is honestly a bit shocking compared to the way that the other Greek gods tend to behave. Um, and he just doesn't leave for very, for pretty much any reason whatsoever. Like the one story of Hades going up on the surface is that time that he got so horny that he needed a wife. So he like kidnapped this other goddess and like immediately just brought her down into the underworld where she is now stuck for, you know, six to seven months out of the year, depending on which tradition you're reading. But that's a story for a different day. Um, Hades just rules the souls of the dead. That's kind of his thing. The underworld is the place that you go when you die in Greek mythology. And I should emphasize, that's not the same thing as hell. Like, the Christians, when they, you know, started bumping into the pagans, very much started to recharacterize Hades as being basically the devil. So oftentimes when you run into descriptions of Hades in contemporary media, you will get this image of, like, this evil dude who's plotting against everybody and who, you know, is really upset about being stuck in the underworld. That's not true for the Greeks at all. Hades is maybe the most even-handed, dispassionate, just guy in the entire Olympic pantheon. Um, he doesn't have biases. He doesn't have a personal agenda. All he does is rule the souls of the dead, and he's perfectly happy to do it as long as nobody's messing with his shit. Um, and importantly, people do frequently come and mess with his shit. Like, Heracles comes in and he messes up the place at one point when he has to kidnap Cerberus, and Hades is like, just, just go, just take him and bring him back when you're done. Like, when Orpheus shows up and he is singing his song that, like, frustrates all the dead, Hades gets really grumpy with him as well, even though he, he ultimately, like, grants him this opportunity to save his wife from the dead. Like, it's this whole thing that Hades just doesn't care. Hades is not interested in what's going on on the surface. He takes care of his own, he takes care of his own business, and when you die, you are basically his subject forevermore, and that's all there is to it. Um, there's no, you know, normative considerations here. Like, there is definitely darkness that's associated with Hades, but he's not a bad guy. He's a dispassionate, just guy. He wants his underworld to work as smoothly as possible, and he doesn't want a bunch of other gods messing with his stuff. Um, so again, we're not going to run into him very often. He's not interested in what's going on in the Trojan War. But we will frequently see the dead souls of Trojan soldiers and fallen suitors and so on and so forth talking about Hades and living in the realm of Hades. And when we get there, we'll talk more about exactly how that works. Um, so those are the big three. As far as the Greeks are concerned, those are the primary three gods, the gods with the most power, so on and so forth. But that's hardly the end of the list here. So let's talk about some of the ladies. 
Um, and first and foremost, we need to talk about the three ladies who are ultimately having a huge dispute over this whole Trojan War thing. Um, so, to sort of talk a bit of the way through the story here, um, Helen of Troy is this really, really hot lady. We're going to talk about her in more detail when we get to actual human characters. Um, but she is very much like the central figure of the entire Trojan conflict, so we kind of have to talk about her pretty early. She is extremely hot, and she is married to Menelaus for reasons that we will talk about in a little bit. And when apparently there's some wedding happening on Olympus, some traditions say that it is in fact the wedding of Peleus and Thetis, which I'm not going to get into that at the moment, um, while this party is going on, strife or discord, which is just basically this horrible goddess who just wants to cause trouble all the time, I kind of love her. Um, she's apparently, you know, being an asshole at this particular party and not having a good time because everybody else is having a good time. So she throws this golden apple of discord, which everybody wants and nobody is allowed to, you know, touch except in very specific circumstances. She throws it into the middle of these three goddesses and says, whoever is the most beautiful, they get to claim the apple. Now, the three goddesses we're referring to here are Hera, Zeus's wife, who we've talked about a little bit. She is very jealous, very protective, and frequently very angry as far as the Greeks are concerned. She's kind of a bitch. Athena, who is Zeus's favorite daughter, and we'll talk about her in a moment, and Aphrodite, who is the goddess of love and the goddess of sex, and who is, by all intents and purposes, probably the most beautiful of the three goddesses, but don't tell the other two that I said that. Um, these three goddesses immediately fall to fighting over this apple. They are immediately competing with each other for who is, in fact, the most beautiful. And they decide to have a competition, what is effectively a beauty contest. Sorry, folks, we are already deep into the misogyny territory, but this is where we're going to stay, get at least somewhat comfortable with it. Fortunately, Homer will be less awful than many of these myth-tellers tend to be. Um... So Heron, Aphrodite, and Athena decide to have Paris, i.e. Alexander, as he is in our text, um, one of the princes of Troy, decide who is the most beautiful. But, because no goddess ever plays fair, each of the three goddesses individually tries to bribe Paris for his selection. So Hera says to Paris, if you choose me, I will make sure that you're living happily and in your relationships, that your family is successful, and that you will rule over great dominions. Athena, who is one of the war gods, emphasizes that if Paris picks her as the most beautiful, she will make sure that he wins every conflict and is always successful in his battles and is always a true great warrior. But Aphrodite, who is, like I said, the goddess of love and beauty and sex, says, hey, you choose me, and I'll make sure that you are married to the most beautiful woman who ever lived, namely Helen, who is, P.S., currently married to Menelaus, and Paris, who isn't exactly the sharpest tool in the drawer, is like, I like hot ladies, I choose you, Aphrodite, you are the most beautiful. Now, we should emphasize all three of these goddesses immediately fall on sides as a consequence. When the Trojan War goes down, it's specifically because Paris has carried off Helen, which violates the treaty that we'll talk about in a moment, which means that Menelaus and all the Greeks are mad, so all the Greeks sail off to fight the Trojans and get Helen back. That means that Aphrodite, being chosen by Paris, is very much Team Troy. 
She is very much protecting her investment here, fulfilling her promise to Paris. She is protecting the relationship between Helen and Paris as weird and messed up as it is. So she is hardcore Team Troy. Hera and Athena, by contrast, are very mad about not being picked in the beauty contest and the fact that it was a giant fix, despite the fact that they also tried to cheat. So they are hardcore Team Greece. And they will absolutely support the Greek armies and, you know, champion their Greek soldiers, and they are absolutely looked out for blood, not just against Aphrodite, but against Paris and against everyone who has chosen to protect Helen in their own right. Now, Hera we've talked about a little bit. Again, she is Zeus's wife. She is very jealous. She is very protective. She is, in fact, hot. You will frequently hear her referred to as cow-eyed Hera, which is a compliment, I promise. I don't know, the Greeks have this thing about cows. We'll probably run into that later. But for now, let's just suffice it to say she is, in fact, pretty, but she's motherly. She is a wife. Her character is defined not by her sex appeal, but by her relationship to her husband, Zeus. Hera is powerful. Hera is a little bit domineering, maybe a more than a little bit domineering. She is smart, but she is more frequently jealous, angry, vindictive, and, again, as the Greeks would see it, pretty bitchy. Um, this is how she is frequently portrayed in the myths, and in Homer she gets a much more generous treatment than she is often given elsewhere, but even so, she is deceptive and cunning and occasionally a little bitchy. Athena is a really interesting case. She is very much an outlier among all of the gods. In part because as a woman, she wouldn't normally be expected to do, like, any of the things that Athena does. Like, women in Greek mythology tend to fall into some pretty predictable camps. They either tend to be, like, hot sluts like Aphrodite, who are just out for sex and who are extremely beautiful and their entire existence is just to be hot and have sex with men, You've got your mothers and family members, like Hera, who are basically responsible for giving birth to lots of children, taking care of the household, maintaining, you know, the, like, power structure of the family at home. And then you've got, like, Artemis and the virgins, you know, daughters and, like, sacred priestesses and stuff who are not supposed to ever be had sex with, and they are neither you know, sex objects or, like, family objects, and therefore they're just sort of, like, reserved in some way or another. Um, Athena is none of those. Like, she is a virgin. She never has sex with anyone. But you very much get the sense that she could if she wanted to. Um, and, in fact, she spends a whole lot of time with the guys. Um, Odysseus, especially, is one of her all-time favorites, as we'll see in the Odyssey and elsewhere. Um, but Athena is also a war goddess, of all things. Like, women aren't supposed to participate in war, as far as the Greeks are concerned. Athena is the only female presence on the battlefield who isn't, like, immediately driven off or kicked off, except for possibly Artemis, and even then it's kind of weird. Athena can hold her own. She is smarter and even stronger than Ares in some ways. She is frequently helping warriors to sort of achieve their full potential. She is very much this outlier in Greek mythology as being surprisingly feminine and yet also surprisingly strong and capable of keeping up with the men in her life. Like, as much as the Olympic pantheon is ruled by Zeus you very much get the sense that if anyone was going to take over after Zeus died or something, it would be Athena. 
Um, she is incredibly competent, incredibly capable, and you are rarely going to see her in Homer or elsewhere without her, like, basically stealing the show from whoever else is hanging out in the scene. Um, so it's kind of surprising that she's getting as vindictive as she does about this whole beauty contest thing, but Athena also has a temper. You don't cross her, or she will wreck you. Um, so... I guess that makes sense in some ways. But again, we'll talk about Athena in more detail as we see more of her exploits in Homer. Um, for now, suffice it to say that if you were not sure what her deal was in this reading, that's fine. It's kind of hard to pin her down. She is not a stereotype, and the, at least not a stereotype by the you know standards that most of these gods and goddesses are sort of like up-jumped, inflated stereotypes. Which... Speaking of stereotypes, Aphrodite totally is a stereotype. She is very much just a piece of ass, as far as the Greeks are concerned. She is incredibly hot, she is incredibly cunning, but not necessarily very smart. Definitely has no business on the battlefield. The one time we're going to see her actually like take a side in the Trojan War, she's going to like flip out and immediately retreat when she like gets this tiny little paper cut across the wrist. Um, she has no business being in the fight, and everybody agrees about this. But at the same time, she has a remarkable power over people, specifically because her domain is sex and beauty. Like, it is emphasized in one of the Homeric hymns that Aphrodite is one of the few gods who really does have a great deal of power over Zeus, because Zeus is extremely vulnerable to falling in love with pretty girls. So when Aphrodite hits Zeus with, you know, the arrows of love, which technically is the business of Eros, who we won't get into that now, um, Aphrodite and Eros, i.e. love, run in the same circles, let's say, um, Aphrodite can very much make Zeus do whatever she wants because she can definitely, you know, throw hot girls in his way and cause him to fall madly in love with him, thus ruining his domestic tranquility and getting her own agenda passed. Likewise, she's got power over just about all of the men for the same reasons. Now, the Greeks, again, have a pretty low view of women. They tend to think that women are tempting and dangerous, and Aphrodite is a perfect example of this. She is really hot and really horrible. Um, you do not want to cross her, because she will make you, like, fall in love with a sheep or something. That would be really bad or strange. Um, so Aphrodite is usually a villain in the way that she is presented in many of the Greek myths. She is, at the very least, extremely dangerous, and most men are counseled to avoid love and falling in love because of the bad things that she can do to you once you have sort of taken the bait there. Um, so those are our three primary goddesses that we're going to see a lot in the Iliad. Hera, the classic wife of Zeus. Aphrodite, the classically beautiful, sexy, tempting object that will cause you nothing but pain. And Athena, who is very much the wild card and who will very much have her own sort of agendas and stuff to do. Um, but let's take a look at some of our other weird gods and goddesses that we are going to see running around, even if they're not quite as integral to the story as Zeus, the Big Three, and our ladies here. Um, and first and foremost, we should talk about Apollo and Artemis. Um, Apollo is going to come up a lot, and it's not entirely clear why. Apollo is apparently the patron deity of Troy, except that 
the patron of deity of Troy may also be Athena. Like, they have this really big statue to Athena in Troy, which doesn't seem to matter because Athena is so pissed at them because of this whole Helen Aphrodite thing. I don't know. At any rate, Apollo is very much Team Troy in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, but Apollo, as a god, has a lot to do. The Greeks associate Apollo with basically everything that has to do with civilization. He is the god of light, he is the god of music, he is the god of poetry, he is the god of literature, he is the god of medicine, he is the god of plague, he is the god of temples, he is the god of prophecy, he is the god of knowledge. Not to be confused with wisdom, that's very much Athena's territory, but it's a whole thing, we'll get into that. Apollo has a large variety of sort of skills and domains, in short, but the Greeks very much emphasize that he's kind of the most prototypically Greek god as well. Like, when the Romans sort of adopt Apollo, they don't like him and they don't talk about him ever, largely because he is so rooted in Greek identity and Greek mythology. At least during classical Greece, again, the time of Plato and Aristotle, the time of Sophocles and Euripides, the time of Euclid, Apollo was very much ascendant. And Apollo, as a young, attractive man who is very capable of a wide variety of skills, but is also sort of like merciless and capable in battle, um, he was very much sort of the model of what the Greek man would aspire to be. Um, so Apollo's a big deal, and Apollo is also frequently, in these texts, associated with prophecy and with fate. Apollo is the one who reminds mortals that they are mortal, because Apollo himself is kind of the perfectest of the gods. And he'll even be described that way, like, he is the most perfect god, he is perfect Apollo, he is shining Apollo, he is beautiful Apollo. Like... He's very much the sort of gold standard in what men and gods should look like, um, and should act like, for that matter. Um, so keep an eye on him, because he's weird, and he's got some really interesting things to do in these texts. Um, but it's also difficult to quantify exactly what his deal is. Now, contrasted with Apollo is, is his twin sister, Artemis. Um, and again, Artemis comes up a couple times in this reading, enough to warrant me, you know, definitely wanting to talk about her and contrast her with Apollo. Um, Apollo and Artemis are kind of two birds of a feather in some way. Apollo is the god of the sun, and Artemis is the god of the moon. Both are very skilled archers, although Apollo's arrows tend to, like, be poisoned and awful and will make you sick and you'll writhe in pain for many years until you finally die, whereas Artemis, as the huntress god, is, like, shoots these beautiful silver arrows that cause, like, swift sleep and painless death. Um, both of them are very dangerous, in short. Like, you do not want to mess with either one. But Apollo we're going to see a lot, because he is, again, associated with civilization and hanging around the Greeks and very much invested in Troy for some reason. Artemis is, like Poseidon in Hades, kind of a loner. She stays in the natural, woody areas of the world. If Apollo is the god of civilization, Artemis is the goddess of nature. Um, she is absolutely an ally to the raw primordial forces that the Greeks do not understand and that they respect as being dangerous and powerful. Um, she is the huntress god, but she also 
like controls and orders around most of the anim the wild animals that live in the forest, including lions and stags and boars and other dangerous animals that could potentially kill you if you were wandering in the woods alone. Uh, she's not going to really take a whole lot of sides in this text. When she does, she is going to be Team Troy, but kind of indifferently as they go, mostly because Apollo is also Team Troy, and I guess she feels obligated to be on the same team as her brother. Um, but that's kind of it for her. Um, you'll notice that like the one time she comes up in our story is when she's the one who is mad at Agamemnon and thus prevents the winds from blowing until Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter Iphigenia to her, which... We don't have the time to go into that now, unfortunately. Hopefully we'll get a little time later. Um, at any rate, it's just like some random god is mad at Agamemnon, turns out it's Artemis. Like, she really doesn't have a, a stake in this whole conflict, so to speak. Um, now, by contrast, we're also going to see a lot of Hermes. And Hermes is another one of those weird gods who kind of doesn't have a very strictly defined domain. Like, it's really easy to talk about. You know, Zeus is the sky god, Poseidon is the sea god, Hades is the underworld god. Hermes is the god of thieves and inventors, and he is ingenious and creative. He is frequently associated with his speed. Um, Hermes isn't quite the messenger god. That job belongs to Iris, but Hermes will frequently deliver stuff to people. Um, Hermes frequently delivers messages from Olympus when they involve, like, a package. So, you know, like, Iris is the U.S. Postal Service, or, you know, at least the mail carrier who drops stuff off in your box on a regular day basis. Hermes is the Amazon package delivery guy who, you know, always brings new stuff to your door. Um, included in this is the fact that Hermes actually delivers dead people to the underworld. Like, if when you die, Hermes shows up, collects you, brings you to the underworld, and that's where you stay forevermore. Um, but Hermes is also a bit of a prankster. Uh, like, he frequently plays tricks on other gods and mortals. Uh, like Athena, he frequently helps out heroes and warriors and brings them cool stuff, like magical weapons and armor in order to facilitate their projects. Uh, like, we're going to see him help out Odysseus by giving him the magic herb that counteracts Circe's, you know, like, potion that turns people into animals. Um... Hermes has a surprising amount to do in the Iliad and the Odyssey, but it's going to be real difficult to pin down his character because he's always going to be moving. Uh, he's always, like, in there for a scene to deliver some news, and then he's gone just as quick, and that's the last we're going to see of him. Um, so, you know, watch out for him, but he's, again, another kind of weird presence. Hephaestus, on the other hand, is really reliable and predictable. Um, Hephaestus is the forge god, which... We should emphasize the Greeks do have a certain amount of respect for, like, skilled labor in that respect. Uh, being an armorer, working a forge, was difficult work and required a great deal of skill. And Hephaestus is incredibly skilled at it. We are going to see Hephaestus make some pretty wonderful weapons and armor by the end of this poem, and we're going to see him frequently devise these ingenious machines, usually with the help of Hermes, who, like, comes up with the idea, and then Hephaestus just puts it into practice. Um, Hephaestus is also the word that we're going to hear here, or hear frequently, is lame or crippled, which I know are ableist terms, but this is how the Greeks would have perceived it. Um, Hephaestus is basically physically disabled. 
Uh, he walks with a limp, like a serious limp, if he can walk at all. The story goes that this is because Hephaestus got into a disagreement between Zeus and Hera, his mother and father, because Zeus is Hephaestus's dad and Hera is Hephaestus's mom, and he took Hera's side, which he apparently does pretty frequently, but Zeus, being an especially mad, angry, powerful god, frequently takes it out on Hephaestus. And in one particularly memorable example, he apparently flung Hephaestus off Olympus, and Hephaestus fell through the sky for ten days and nights before falling onto a mountain and breaking his back. Um, so Hephaestus is injured because of parental abuse. Like... Let's just get that out of the way right now, but the Greeks don't consider this to be especially terrible. Like, as much as there are some stories and storytellers who are sympathetic to Hephaestus, for the most part, Hephaestus is just kind of okay with his situation, and we're even encouraged to laugh at him from time to time, which I know is kind of weird. Um, suffice it to say that Hephaestus is kind of ridiculous to the Greeks. On the one hand, he is really powerful. He is really skilled. He is really capable. Like, he solves the problem of, I can't walk with, I will build two metal robots who will carry me around, one made of gold and one made of silver, which is pretty badass as solutions to being unable to walk go. Um, especially in ancient Greece. But at the same time, Hephaestus is a peacemaker. When, when his mother and father, Zeus and Hera, are fighting over, you know, some indiscretion that Zeus had or some bad choice that Zeus made or whatever, Hephaestus is usually the first one to try and get everybody to laugh, the first one to try and to get everybody to forgive each other, the first one to try and get everybody to, have, to make peace with each other. Like, I've been emphasizing throughout that most of the gods are real assholes here. You do not want to mess with Zeus. He will strike you with a lightning bolt. You do not want to mess with Poseidon. He will, like, engulf you in the ocean. You don't want to mess with Athena. She will straight up kill you. You don't want to mess with Apollo or Artemis, or you will be shot and killed. Like, all of these gods are terrible people uh, when, in fact, you've offended them or insulted them in some way. Of all of the gods in the Olympic pantheon, I'm pretty sure if I could invite any one of them to go get a beer together, it would be Hephaestus, because he's a decent person. Like, he is a cool dude. And even when he shows up in Homer, the few times that he shows up, he's going to be pretty chill. Um, he is not going to have these, like, nasty agendas that he's working out, unless he's legitimately been seriously wronged and not just insulted. Um, he is a hard-working guy who is trying to make the world a better place, which is weird among the Greeks. And it kind of makes sense that they sort of look down on him as a consequence. Like, he is naive in some ways. Um, the last two gods that I want to talk about are really pretty minor. Um, one is Ares. Ares is the war god, and he is an asshole. And that's basically all there is to say about Ares. Like, we said that Athena was the war goddess and that she could usually take Ares in a fight. That's because as much as Ares is in fact the god of war, he's also just a giant dick about it. Like, he, you do not want Ares on your side in a war. As much as he is powerful and he will absolutely wreck the other side, Ares is unpredictable. Um, we're told in the Iliad that Ares used to be on Team Greek and then switched to Team Troy because... 
he's an asshole. Like, that's all there is to it, just because he's unpredictable, because he all he cares about is killing people. Um, Zeus will frequently emphasize he likes killing, and that's a bad thing to the Greeks. Warriors are a job that needs to be done in certain circumstances. They are not respected for being able to kill. As much as there is a lot of talk these days about, you know, ancient Greek values and masculinity and warrior culture, that's really not the way that Homer is going to depict it. Like other Greek myths, more so. But Ares is kind of the worst in Homer. Nobody respects him. Nobody likes him. He's a terrible person. And he frequently just kills and gluts himself on the blood and the suffering. That's all that he's into. He is the most sadistic of the gods, and with no redeeming value either. So he's definitely going to be a force to be reckoned with, and he will definitely show up in this book, but he is not somebody you want to emulate or admire. Um, lastly, we should talk about Thetis. Thetis isn't one of the primary gods. Like, when I teach my mythology class, I'm like, all right, there are 14 main gods and goddesses in the Olympic pantheon. Here they are, bing, bang, boom. Obviously, we didn't cover all 14 of them because several of them just aren't even going to come up in the Iliad all that much, and we'll talk about them only when they do. Um, Thetis is definitely not on the big 14 list. But Thetis is a big deal for the Iliad especially because Thetis is Achilles' mom. And this is unusual in its own right. Most of the great Greek heroes have a divine father. Like, Zeus is the father of Heracles. Um, Zeus is the father of Theseus. Um, Poseidon is the father of Perseus. Um, even Dionysus and Apollo will get theirs in from time to time. But goddesses are not allowed the same latitude as gods are, usually. They are not encouraged to sleep with mortals. It does happen. So, for example, Aeneas, who we're going to talk about a lot in this course by the end of the semester, is in fact the son of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was sort of tricked into falling in love with a guy named Anchises, who was like the nephew of Priam. It's this whole thing. Um, and when Aphrodite and Anchises had sex, they uh, Aphrodite became pregnant with Aeneas, and Aeneas has got his own sort of exciting adventures that we'll talk about later. Um, but this is rare. It doesn't happen often. And Aphrodite, when she falls in love with Anchises, is actually really grumpy about it. Like, this is her turf, and she has been sort of victimized by her own power set, and she's very indignant about it. Um, so the fact that Thetis is Achilles' mom, and that Achilles is divine on his mother's side, is weird. But importantly, there's a story there, too. According to legend, Thetis helped out the gods in a really tough spot. Like, she gave them the idea to, that saved them from one of the big battles that the gods were fighting before human beings were really around. And as a consequence, Zeus owes, Zeus owes Thetis a big debt. And Zeus even considered marrying Thetis at one point. Like, that was the way he was going to repay her. But apparently there was some prophecy that said that whoever Thetis, or whatever kid Thetis had, was going to be greater than the father of who Thetis, you know, had had sex with. Which is something Zeus doesn't want. 
Zeus is himself a son who over, who overthrew a father. He is well aware of the fact that if, in fact, he's going to get kicked out, he's going to likely get kicked out by a son, or possibly Athena. But, and as a consequence, he does not want to even touch Thetis with a ten-foot pole, because the risk there is too great. If he, in fact, had a son, that son would almost undoubtedly overthrow Zeus because he was more powerful. So... Just to play it safe, Zeus sort of carefully married her off to a mortal, namely Peleus, knowing full well that, you know, some other human who turned out to be greater than his father would not present any risk to the gods. So as a consequence, Achilles was born to Thetis. And Achilles is, as the prophecy suggested, greater than his father Peleus. But Thetis is upset about this situation, because Achilles is mortal. And in fact, there are some hardcore prophecies about how he's going to die young. And Thetis is already mourning his loss. That's the thing about being a goddess and having a mortal son. You're going to have to watch him die. And most goddesses are not game for that in the way that the gods are. Like, Zeus is bummed when his kid dies. We'll see what happens when Sarpedon, who is like the last of Zeus's sons, is in fact dead at Patroclus' hand. Zeus is kind of bummed about it, but he gets over it pretty quick. Thetis, on the other hand, does not get over it the death of Achilles, even when he hasn't died yet. Like, a lot of the Iliad is going to be devoted to Thetis and Achilles talking about the impending death of Achilles. So, keep in mind, Thetis is kind of a tragic figure here. Um, she has her own agenda, for sure, namely making sure that Achilles is respected and honored and hopefully getting him out of the war long enough that he'll survive. But Thetis isn't a huge player in divine ordeals. She is not one of the big power players amongst the gods and goddesses. She is a minor god, I say carefully, knowing full well that it's weird in Greek mythology, but we'll cover that more later. But let's talk about the humans, because we are rapidly running out of time here. Um, so on Team Greece, we should definitely get some of our major heroes and players sorted out. Obviously, first of all, we, there's Helen. Like, Helen is, in fact, an Achaean. She was born Greek. And when she was born, she was apparently so hot and so wonderful that, like, every king in Greece showed up to marry her, which is why Odysseus slash Ulysses had to create this fancy little plan to get kind of, like, arrange things so there wasn't this huge, full-blown war over who got to marry Helen. Um, so Helen is, on the one hand, kind of just a MacGuffin, in this whole Trojan War business. Like, she didn't want the Trojan War to happen. She, according to many traditions, was raped by Paris when he abducted her from Menelaus. She is, as a result, kind of guiltless, innocent. And it'll be really interesting to see how Homer exactly portrays her in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Because Homer is actually really attentive to Helen's emotional state in a way that most writers just aren't. Like, we're going to read Euripides later on in the semester, and when he portrays Helen, she's just horrible. Like, she's just a, you know, grade-A bitch as far as the Greeks are concerned. Um, but Helen here is complicated, messy. And depending on the tradition that you follow, she is either a victim of this as much as anybody else, she is a victim of her own beauty in some sense, or alternatively, she is the engineer of this elaborate soap opera that ends in the deaths of thousands, countless heroic Greek men. So again, Helen is divisive, and we'll talk about that more when we encounter her. Um, but let's talk about the dudes. First off, Menelaus. 
is the king of Sparta. Yes, that Sparta, the 300 soldiers who fought back the Persians at Thermopylae, Sparta. Um, Sparta is a warrior culture, but in all likelihood at Homer's day, it was not nearly the warrior culture that we associate with it today. That comes later in that golden age of Greece, 4th and 5th century stuff. We'll talk about that in its own time as well. Um, as far as we're concerned, Menelaus is just kind of a schlub who is bad at keeping his wife in check. Like, he is a cuckold as, you know, Shakespeare would have it. Um, and we're not, he's like not a super good warrior. He's not super smart like Odysseus. He is not super awesome like Ajax or Achilles or Diomedes. Like, he's just kind of there. He's a little past his prime. He's a little older and as a result doesn't participate in the fighting all that much. Like, he can definitely fight when he wants to. We'll see him absolutely wreck Paris, thank God. Um, but... Nonetheless, he's not a huge character in his own right, not like many of the others that we're going to talk about here. Take, for example, Odysseus. Like, Odysseus is possibly one of the most important characters that we're going to run into, period, throughout this semester. Um, you'll notice he is the engineer of the, Ro of the Trojan War. He is the one that binds all of the Greeks into this agreement to protect Helen's marriage in the first place. His cunning is his defining character. He is the guy who comes up with the Trojan horse. He frequently is engaged in, like, stealth missions to sneak into the city of Troy and steal shit or, you know, cause trouble and stuff. He is also very much punished by when he offends Poseidon, getting delayed and going home by a whole ten years, which causes its own problems, as we'll see in the Odyssey and as you saw in our reading for today. Um, we should also emphasize that he's kind of a minor king, like, he's a big deal, he's certainly an important strategic general, but he is not powerful in the way that, say, Agamemnon is powerful. Um, Agamemnon is in charge of the whole Trojan War affair. Um, as you saw in the text, Agamemnon becomes the sort of key general in the Trojan War, where Achilles is the key admiral. Like, Achilles is in charge as long as they're at sea, which is a lot of the time, to be perfectly honest. Um, Agamemnon is in charge of the actual battles when they take place. But as a consequence, there's a lot of friction. Because Agamemnon is also old, and he's not even as good a warrior as Menelaus is. Like, he's rich, he's powerful, he controls the most important city in all of Greece at this point, Mycenae, but he's also kind of an arrogant prick and not really all that good at being a general. It's complicated. Um, we'll see him and discuss his role in the Iliad in much more detail once we actually start into the text, because he's introduced to us in some pretty contradictory circumstances. Um, suffice it to say that Agamemnon is well-respected by the Greeks, but it's not always clear whether that respect is, deserted, is deserved. Um, Agamemnon's a bit tricksy that way. He's kind of a jerk, but he's also kind of right to be a jerk. He kind of needs to be a jerk. He's in charge. He's the one who's making the rules. He's going to have to play the bad guy sometimes. Which makes him a really interesting foil to Achilles. See, Achilles is the strongest warrior that the Greeks have on the battlefield when they go to Troy. Like, bar none, no question, no contest. Achilles could wipe the floor with literally any other Greek soldier, period, the end. No, he couldn't outsmart Odysseus, but if it was a straight-up running race, he would run circles around Odysseus. No, he is, you know, not as, like, powerful as Agamemnon, but you better believe that if it came to blows, Ag Achilles would dice Agamemnon before Agamemnon barely even got a sword out. 
The only person who might be even close to as strong as Achilles is Ajax. Telamonian Ajax, I should emphasize. We have two Ajaxes here, just to further confuse things. We will know them as Big Ajax, i.e. Telamonian Ajax, or Ajax, son of Telamon, and Little Ajax, who is Ajax, son of Oeneus, and isn't important at all, um, except for dying hilariously. Um, so Agamemnon is important. Achilles is the fighter on the field, and Achilles and Agamemnon's frustration is what leads to the whole story of the Iliad in the first place. Namely, Achilles is young, does not have to be here, because he was never part of Odysseus's arrangement. He is crazy strong, the most powerful soldier the Greeks have, and he doesn't think that he's being treated well enough for all the cool stuff that he's been doing, especially when Agamemnon gets a little short with him and starts taking his prizes slash lady friends from him because Agamemnon is a bit of an asshole. Um, we should also mention Patroclus. Patroclus is Achilles' best friend and possibly fuckboy. It's unclear here in the Iliad what exactly the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus is. Um, tradition definitely has it that they are sleeping together. The men-to-men -men relationships were very common in the Greek world. We'll talk about that more when we actually get to Achilles and Patroclus. Um, but we should also be careful not to read in the future here. Male homosexual relationships were very common in the Greek Golden Age, but it's not quite as obvious that they were so common here in the Trojan War, either in the actual historical period or when Homer is writing about it. So it could very much be a misreading in some respects. We'll have to look at the text more closely and see for sure. Um, you'll notice, though, that this is that Patroclus' relationship with Achilles, whatever it is, is super important. Because when Patroclus dies, Achilles loses his shit and immediately starts getting back into the fray and killing every Trojan who gets in his way. Um, so whether or not they are gay lovers, they are definitely very close, very important relationship there. Definitely be aware of Patroclus, especially because Homer is going to give him a particularly dignified honor um, in the Iliad, as we'll talk about later. Other than that, we should definitely shout out and pay attention to Diomedes. He is an important warrior and an important king on the Greek side, although he doesn't have anything terribly interesting going on with him. Um, Ajax, we talked about, super strong, not that bright. Uh, Briseis is the lady prize that Agamemnon and Achilles are going to be fighting over for the first half of the text. Um, we should also notice a couple of other people, specifically Nestor, um, Nestor is kind of the oldest dude on the Greek side, and Nestor is a product of a former age. Um, one of the things that the Greeks believe is that every, every generation is weaker and less important and less good um, than the generation that came before. So Nestor has a lot of stories about the older generation, like the real Greek heroes, Theseus and Perseus and Heracles. Like, those were real men. And, you know, these wimps like Achilles and Diomedes and Odysseus can't even hold a candle to how awesome those heroes were. Um, Nestor would have been one of them and was as powerful as they were, but a long time ago. Now he's just an old guy with a lot of cool stories. Nestor is frequently dis or sort of trotted out by Homer for advice and also to sort of tell a lot of these other myths, which is in many cases the primary source that we have for a lot of these myths. 
Um, but he is not a hugely important warrior in his own right. He doesn't move the plot forward. He is here to sort of persuade people, be wise, and sort of like the Yoda to, you know, Achilles' Luke Skywalker or Agamemnon's Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, he's got his own role to play. Definitely pay attention to him. He's doing his own thing, but, you know, he's not nearly the sort of mover and shaker as many of these heroes are. Um, also be aware of Neoptolemus. Neoptolemus is a latecomer, and he's not even going to show up in the Iliad, from, at, like, all. Uh, but Neoptolemus is Achilles' son, Yes, this is a thing, despite the fact that Achilles apparently had Neoptolemus, like, at the age of, I don't even know, like, 15 or something? It's not clear, but it's, it is what it is. Uh, Neoptolemus is going to be the one to end this war. Like, as much as Achilles is the strongest fighter that the Greeks have on the battlefield, he is killed in this fluke accident where friggin' Paris shoots him with an arrow. What the fuck is that about? Um, at any rate, this is large, well-established tradition. Achilles is dead by the time that the Trojan, uh, the, the Trojan War ends. Um, and the only way that they can actually get the Trojan War to end is if they bring Neoptolemus, Achilles' son, along. And it's kind of complicated how that happens. Again, you'll see the description of it here. We will see Neoptolemus again when Troy is sacked in the Aeneid. Um, he is an important character, but he's not going to actually show up in Homer, like, at all. Um, so know him, know his legacy, know his business, but, you know, don't necessarily watch out for him in Homer, because he's not going to show up. Um, as for the Trojans, which, again, I sort of put a footnote in the uh, worksheet that these are often referred to as the Phrygians, and Troy is often referred to as Ilium. The Phrygians is actually a new word. Um, it would not have been appropriate in Homer's own day, and Homer will never call the Trojans the Phrygians. Um, there's actually some weird historical propaganda stuff associated with calling the Trojans Phrygians. Um, this is a term that is only ever used, like, when the Greco-Persian War is staring, is staring the Greeks in the face. Um, so a lot of people start retelling the Trojan War as, you know, that time the Greeks kicked the ass of the Persians, even though that wasn't really what it was. Um, so, yeah, Phrygians is how Apollodorus refers to it, because Apollodorus knows that there are a lot of sources that he is using that call them the Phrygians. Homer will never use that term, because it is an anachronism, even for Homer. Um, but the Trojan, the important Trojans you need to keep track of, first and foremost, is Priam. Priam is the king of Troy. He is crazy rich. Um, Troy is supposedly the biggest, best, wealthiest city in the Mediterranean at this point in time. Whether that in fact is true or not is a whole other matter. Um, but Priam supposedly has like 50 sons and 50 daughters in this really grand palace that like has rooms and bedrooms for all of his sons and all of his daughters and all of his sons' wives and all of his daughters' husbands. Like, this guy is loaded. Like, hugely rich, hugely powerful. Um, he is the one who is calling the shots on the Trojan side. But at the same time, he is also painfully tragic throughout Homer. He is a guy who was literally on top of the world. And then this shit happened, and now everything he has built, everything that he owns, everything that he loves is falling apart, piece by piece, gradually under the Greek ons onslaught. Most notably, of course, is Hector. 
Um, Hector is the strongest soldier the Greek, the Trojans have to bring to the field. He is also their most capable general and just a decent all-around guy, like, period. Homer is frequently going to portray Hector as the decentest human being in the Iliad amongst all of the heroes. Um, he is kind of one part Achilles and one part Odysseus wrapped into the same guy, um, as, and like, just with a whole level of, you know, civic responsibility, decent family values, and good, honest, hard-working soldiery layered on top of it. Um, he's also the last hope of Troy, which is why it's so important in the Iliad when he dies. When Hector dies, Troy is doomed, and everybody knows this. Hector is the last thing keeping Troy on its feet in some sense. Um, now, Hector is to be very much contrasted with Paris. Like, Hector has a good family relationship. He's married to his wife Andromache, he has his son Astyanax, um, he loves both of them very dearly, and he respects and, like, protects them just as he protects the rest of the, the soldiers and the rest of the city. Paris, on the other hand, is the asshole who is responsible for this whole war in the first place. If he had not picked Aphrodite when he had chosen... Uh, the, the winner of the beauty contest, Helen would still be with Menelaus, and Troy wouldn't be under attack. So Paris is personally responsible for everything that's going on, and he's kind of a dick about it. Like, he doesn't take responsibility for this war the way that Hector does, even though Hector is kind of guiltless about it. Paris is more frequently hanging out with Helen in his bedroom than he is on the field fighting for the right to, you know, keep sleeping with Helen. Um, he's kind of the worst in that respect. We should also mention Aeneas. Like I said, he's kind of a big deal in his own right. Um, he is specifically important because he is one of the few, uh, like, princes of Troy to actually escape Troy, and he is going to have a lot of tradition pinned on him by the Romans, by other Greeks who sort of see him as the founder of Rome and the founder of the Roman Empire as well. Um, so he's a big deal, even though he's not going to have a whole huge role to play in Homer. Um, like, Homer respects him. He's definitely one of the better soldiers on the Trojan side. Um, but generally, he cannot keep up with even the likes of Diomedes or even, you know, relatively minor Greek heroes. So he's a big deal, but he's not the best fighter they've got. What's more important is his legacy in that sense. So those are the major characters that we need to keep track of, and hopefully along the way we talked and clarified most of the events that have taken place. Um, if, in fact, we need to talk about that more in class, we totally can, so if you have questions, feel free to ask. Um, otherwise, I hope that you've got a pretty decent sense of what the situation is going into our whole Iliad discussion, the whole Trojan War business. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to illuminate any of the stuff that we missed as we go along, since Homer will bump into a lot of those other stories along the way. Um, for next time, we're going to talk about the other side of trying to understand the Iliad, namely the way that it's composed, the style that Homer uses, and basically the instruction set you need in order to read this poem correctly. Um, how to read the Iliad is kind of our, our next discussion. Um, so today was the story, the content. Next time is the structure, the style. Um, so we'll talk about that. Read the article that I have for you from the Cambridge Companion of Homer on uh, formulas, meters, and type scenes. And we'll talk about that next time.